Hello, welcome to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. My name is Kyle Bird. With me is my co-host, Matt Parmley. And we have a very special guest today. Uh, returning to the show is Kaiju Cast host, and well, I guess I don't know former Kaiju Cast host. I don't know, and current Collect All Monsters host Kyle Young. How are you, sir? Dude, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, guys. And technically, Kaiju Cast just has gone as an as an audio podcast. So I am still the Kaiju Cast host. I just haven't done any videos yet, but they're gonna they're gonna be coming soon. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, cool. you know, <laughs> I'll always be the Kaiju Cast guy. Always. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's fair to say at this point. Um. Well, uh, so are, are you still uh, are you still quarantined over there? And we are under what you call phase one of reopening right now in Oregon, where they basically have like a really strict, like uh, social distancing procedures that people are supposed to be recognizing, and certain things are open. But I'm still working from home, so essentially, I'm basically still quarantined. Okay, yeah, that's. That's kind of where we are, although uh, I go back Monday, and then, Matt, are you ever going back to work? <laughs> uh, I, I luckily work uh, for a company that's, like, letting everybody stay home for the time being. That could change, uh, so we'll we'll see. They haven't said anything formally about going back. And Ohio's, like, just in general, they're, they're starting to open up, and I think basically by the end of June, uh, besides having, like, limitations as to how many people can be in buildings and, you know, six feet of space and stuff like that. Everything's going to pretty much be open. And so, yeah, I don't know if that's, uh, we'll see how, how the coronavirus cases skyrocket. <laughs> yeah. Time, yeah. Post protest. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So we're here today to talk about, uh, Japanese mythology, specifically, um, the Legend of Yamata no Orochi, and uh, all of the characters that inhabit that myth, um, as well as the three feature-length films based on it, which is uh, The Three Treasures uh, from Toho, Little Prince and the Eight-Headed Dragon from Toei Animation, and Yamato Takeru, also from Toho. And uh, this is... A lot of material, especially because we did a pretty deep dive into the actual mythology. Um, so bear with us, as uh, I'm sure we, especially Matt, um, will we'll get <laughs> probably get lots of Japanese names wrong, which we apologize for in advance. Um, you guys, we should start like a count of every time I fuck <laughs> up a Japanese name. <laughs> it's like a bell goes off. Um. So, yeah, I think uh, Orochi, the eight-headed dragon, um, is a character that is still pretty much everywhere in Japanese pop culture, um, not only in different aspects of Godzilla, but also, uh, Matt, you were saying, like, is it Naruto? Is that the one that had a... Yeah, Naruto has a lot of, like... Sasano and Matarasu and like different things show up as either like a, a form of attack 
or like an actual character. Like there's a character called Orochimaru, which conveniently turns into a, a serpent with eight heads, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, they're they're everywhere, pretty much. It's like he, how here, you know, all of the these biblical figures are just you know show up everywhere. Um, now uh, I mentioned connections to Godzilla, and um, since uh, we need to let Matt yammer on for a good five hours in a moment. Um, <laughs> I'm going to uh, um, take it over to other Kyle to kind of tell us um, where Orochi may have popped up in Godzilla material. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that I should probably mention is that Orochi, as we know, is the dragon in Birth of Japan Nippon Tanjo, you'll see him when we talk about each of the other movies as well. But uh, because that movie came out in 1959, this is actually the predecessor to Godzilla's Joker, Ghidra. Ghidra is essentially like birthed from the design of Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon from Birth of Japan. Yep. Uh, In addition to that... Before Godzilla versus Space Godzilla had been figured out, Toho was going to bring back a space version of King Ghidra for the sixth Godzilla film, and he was going to be called Emperor Ghidra, be it, to be a descendant of Orochi. Is that right? Yeah, from from what I understand. That's awesome. And of course, a variation of the name Emperor Ghidra would be used for Kaiser Ghidra in Final Wars. Now, my favorite, one of my favorite Godzilla movies, GMK. Ghidra in that movie is, of course, supposed to be a guardian of Japan and is like a baby Orochi, and which is why he has three heads. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, to this day, I've owned several copies of that movie in various formats. To this day, the only one that subtitled it correctly is the very first copy I ever bought, which was uh, my bootleg VHS. All the other versions either say the eight-headed dragon, or uh, they don't even mention it at all. <laughs> um, Man, that movie needs a serious subtitle sweep. It Somebody really does. It. Really, <laughs> yeah. really go through and do, do a much better yeah. job of subtitling that movie. But if you hear the Japanese dialogue, you can hear them say Orochi. But... Mm-hmm. Now, in 2019, when Godzilla King of the Monsters came out from Legendary Pictures, one of the titans listed around the world, specifically Outpost 19 in Mount Fuji, was uh, also named Orochi. I think it was Yamata no Orochi Yeah, it has the full name. And then Godzilla battles Orochi in two of the manga, or two of the comic books, in the story Gone with the Wind... In the manga, the Godzilla comic raids again, and in IDW's Rage Across Time. And last but not least, this was actually something that I thought was really super cool when I bought the Art of Shin Godzilla book. The strategy used to dispatch Godzilla with the coagulant at the end of the film is called the Yashiori strategy. And the Yashiori is the name of the sake that Orochi is drugged with in the Japanese myth. Uh, And Orochi, the dragon, is also on the logo of the team's outfits of that strategy. I didn't tell you guys this before, but I actually bought a patch with that logo on it, and it's on my messenger bag. 
Nice. Anyway, inside of that art of Shin Godzilla book, there's like the patch design, but there's also a bunch of other concept designs that uh, whoever did the drawings, which I'm guessing could have been Huguchi, but uh, there's like the Pegasus and the sword and the Magatama and just some really cool alternative designs. I hope you guys could actually post those when you post the episode. That'd yeah, be awesome. we will. And the, the cool thing about the Pegasus is that it's specifically the one from Little Prince yeah, it's a, and the Eight-Headed it's Dragon. Awesome. That's pretty awesome. Um, so I'm going to jump in here and we're going to talk about the actual stories, the myths, and give some background. A huge, huge shout out and thank you to our buddy and supporter, Justin Mullis who sent a lengthy document kind of outlining a lot of the stories and notes for us. Um, for those who don't know, he actually uh, has a Tumblr blog, Man Creates Dinosaurs. He also did a write-up for John LeMay's uh, Kong book. Um, he's been on the Film Find, Monster Talk. He's also been on Mazer Patrol. He is also a PhD candidate in cultural studies at Bowling Green State University. And he has a uh, master's in religious studies um, from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. So, like, he's the perfect person to give us some of the notes in the background, obviously, because of the, the religious background for these films. And so I just want to say any errors that are in this next part are going to be my own because I added my own notes. Uh, and so I'm sure anything right is probably going to be that of Justin's. And that's how you'll be able to figure out which is which. And so. This is a very dense portion as I kind of talk about the actual stories in the background. So bear with me as I try to get through it. Um, so first, some background. All three of these films, Little Prince, Three Treasures, and Orochi the Eight-Headed Dragon, a.k.a. Yamato Takeru, are based on material from Japan's two earliest written documents. That would be the Kojiki, which is also known as the Record of Ancient Matters, and that was written in the, the year 712 as well as the Nihongi, which is the Chronicles of Japan, written in 720. Um, I found the next thing kind of interesting. There's actually only three translations of the, the Kojiki. Uh, one from 1882, uh, written by Basil Hall Chamberlain. And then Donald Philippi wrote one in 1969, which is actually published through University of Tokyo Press. And then one from 2014, which is from uh, Gustav Helt, and that's through Columbia University Press. And then the Nihongi has one active translation, and that is actually from 1896 uh, by William George Aston. And I, I think that's kind of interesting because you have all these, you have ancient literature and like some of the stuff we know from it is over 100 years old from like a translation standpoint. So I found that pretty interesting. Um, at any rate, The Little Prince is actually, the, the movie The Little Prince is based on the story of the storm god Sasano and his slaying of the eight-headed dragon Yamato no Orochi. Um, the Three Treasures and Yamato Takeru are actually both based on the legend of Prince Yamato Takeru, who happens to be the son of the 12th emperor and member of the Yamato dynasty. But they also both incorporate elements of the story from Sasano's slaying of Orochi. So they're telling uh, basically both stories kind of at the same time or in different fashions. Um, so let's talk about the actual kind of story itself. So the idea here is this is like a creation story and you have kind of the beginning of time. You have these gods showing up and then you have two of the gods we're going to focus on would be Izanagi and wife Izanaki. And these two gods come together to actually create the Japanese islands. That's kind of where our story starts. They are also the parents of the sun goddess Amaterasu and the moon deity Sukiyomi 
as well as the Storm God Sasano. So those are kind of three of the main players that you're going to see throughout today's episode. As for the story themselves, I'm going to kind of read through a synopsis. And we're going to start, actually, as I fumble through my notes, uh, with Susano's slaying of the Yamato no Orochi. And this, is actually, this story is actually found in identical form in both the Kojiki and the Hangi. So that's actually kind of interesting that it's in both ancient texts and there's not many alterations, if it, any at all. Um, so the story starts out that basically because of his unruly behavior, the storm god Susano is banished to Earth where he, enc- he encounters an elderly couple. And this couple have a daughter, and they're all crying and weeping and very sad. And he's trying to figure out why they're so sad. And then he learns about the Orochi, which is this horrible, terrible, gigantic dragon. And the text describes him as having eyes like round cherries. He has one body with eight heads and eight tails. And on his body grows like moss and cypress and trees. And he's so huge that he spans eight valleys and eight mountain peaks. And then if you look at his belly, you will see that he has blood oozing out from all over it. And so as this couple is telling the story to Sasano, he's, they, re- he t- they also tell him that he, they will have to sacrifice. They sacrifice one daughter per year. They had, they had eight daughters to start. And this year, would, they will be the time to sacrifice their final daughter. And so Sasano comes to them and basically says, hey, I'll slay the dragon if you will let me marry your daughter. And so the couple agrees. And then Sasano promptly transforms their daughter into a comb, which I didn't understand at first. But actually, her name, which is uh, Kushinata Hime, is actually some sort of pun for calm. Thanks to Justin for that uh, shout out. So it's just a pun for the word calm. So what Susano does next is he sets a trap for the dragon. and He puts out eight barrels of sake. And when the dragon comes to devour the young girl, he instead discovers a sake. He drinks. He gets drunk. He passes out. At which point, Susano unleashes the sword ten hands long, which he was wearing at his side. And hacked the dragon to pieces so that the river ran with blood, unquote. Um, he splits the tail open and then he discovers the kusanage, which is the grass cutting sword. The reason the kusanage is so important to this episode is because the kusanage is basically what will be given to his sister, Amatresu, later on to settle a debt. And the kusanage is actually the direct tie between the creation of Japan and Sasano with. Yamato Takeru. So that's how you kind of tie those two stories together. And we'll talk more about that as the episode progresses. So after he defeats the dragon, he seeks a place to find land. He builds his palace. And then he would actually rule alongside his sister, who was the goddess Amaterasu. And Amaterasu would actually have the first emperor of Japan as her son, and his name was Jemu. So that's kind of the, the idea of Japan comes into existence. You have Orochi. You have the birth of the first emperor of Japan. Um, the next story, which is about Yamato Takeru, starts off that the there's twin brothers. They both have very similar names, and I'm not going to try. I don't know how to say them differently, but they're basically spelled almost identical, and it's Os or Osu. Um, they are birth to the twelfth emperor of Japan, and this guy has a ton of wives, and so he actually sends the eldest brother out to negotiate for the hands of two sisters that he wants to marry. But the older brother basically says, you know what? I want these women for myself. And so he sends back two other women to try to pass them off to as as his father, as the original girls that his father wanted to marry. The emperor gets pretty ticked about it. And so he sends his younger brother to knock some sense into him, which results in the younger brother murdering the older brother. I'm going to read a quote from the story. Um, Quote, I grasped hold of him. I crushed him and pulling off his limbs, 
wrapped them in matting and flung them away. So that's uh, <laughs> that's that's the murderous story of brother killing brother. Um, the emperor is, of course, upset with his son for murdering his other son and specifically dismembering him. And so he sends him out west to go fight two brave warriors. And these are from the tribe nicknamed Bear Folk. And these tribe, this tribe has been kind of causing trouble. So the brother, Osu, infiltrates the ranks of Bear Folk, and he basically disguises himself as a woman. He gets close to two brothers. He stabs and kills one. And then the other runs, and he chases him. Before, the, before he can slay him, though, he tries to flatter him by giving him a new name, which is Yamato Takeru, which is translated as Yamato the Brave. So, so Osu likes the new name, and he takes it, and then he takes a sword and, and quote, splits him, splits open the guy like a ripe melon. Um, <laughs> quite the I've seen that kung fu movie. <laughs> um, so Yamato Takeru at that point goes back home. The emperor still kind of ticked at him, and he says, "Hey, this time go east. There's also unruly people there, um, and you need to pledge and have them pledge their allegiance or pledge their submission to us." And so at this point, Yamato Takeru begins to suspect his father is sending him on all these dangerous missions and hope that he will actually be killed. He tells his aunt, who is the priestess of Amaterasu, who I mentioned kind of at the beginning of this, and she gives him the mag- a magic bag and the kusanagi. Remember, kusanagi is a sword that Sasana pulled out of the tail of the Orochi, and Sasana would then give that to his sister Amaterasu, and this is, of course, the priestess of Amaterasu, so that's how there's that connection there. That's how they have the sword in the first place. Um, so Yamato Takeru, he travels and he's, he gets in several battles. Um, I'm leaving out some of that because it is such a dense piece of the story. Eventually he finds himself on the sea of racing waters, but there is a, the God of the sea whips up a fierce storm. Um, Yamato Takeru's wife, Oto then sacrifices herself to the sea God so that Yamato Takeru can pass. Now, if you're wondering where the wife came from and where we haven't, why we haven't talked about her yet. You're not alone because one of the notes from is that most scholars agree this character was probably added into the story later and wasn't there originally. So basically, here's a character that was added after the fact from the original writing, which is why she kind of seemingly pops up out of nowhere. So Yamato Takeru subdues all his father's enemies. He returns home and he actually marries his cousin, who is the daughter of his aunt, which would be, again, um, uh, the priestess of Amaterasu. Um Everything is peaceful for a while until Yamato Takeru hears about the mount, the god of Mount Ibiki. And this god refused to submit to the dynasty of Yamato. And so he thought that he could, Yamato Takeru thought that he could easily defeat the god in hand-to-hand combat. And so he leaves behind the magic bag and the kusanagi, and he actually climbs a mountain. The god takes the form of a giant white boar and eventually kills Yamato Takeru. So as he dies in the plane of... So Numatu Takeru dies. His wife and children and loyal subjects build a funeral, uh, have a funeral for him. And his corpse at the end turns into a giant white bird, which will be something that happens in the films as well, but in different uh, facets, and then flies away. So that's both stories kind of tied up. There are some variations of the story. So a variation of the Numatu Takeru... Uh, Takeru's story can actually be found in the Nihangi as well, and there are some key differences, and I'll go through these real quick. Um, there's nothing about, in this version, there's nothing about Yamato Takeru killing his twin brother. He's instead introduced as a 16-year-old boy who is dispatched by his father, the emperor, to subdue the bear folk living in the West. And then his target is not the uh, two warriors, but rather the sole leader of the bear folk. 
and he uses he still uses the cross-dressing bit by disguising himself as a woman to sneak in and get close to him so that he can actually assassinate him. Um, and he's still given the name of y- Yamatu Takeru before doing so. And then this story has a pretty interesting distinction where the father, when he returns, the father, instead of sending him out again and having contempt for him, actually has a lot of affection for him, which is a pretty big distinction between the two stories. Um, and then again, when Yamatu Takeru is crossing the Sea of Racing Waters, there's an interesting note that Oto, which was described as his wife in the first story, is actually described here as a concubine instead. Um, and then before he meets his end at Mount Ibiki, when he discovers the god of the mountain who takes the form of a um, giant s- serpent in the story rather than a, a boar, and the serpent poisons him, and that's how he kills him, um, and he basically grows ill and passes away at the age of 30. His coffin is then uh, buried, and shortly afterwards, there's a huge white bird seen leaving his grave. So there's a couple different variations there. Um, author uh, Sanamami Seijin, who, um, who actually wrote a version of the legend in the early 1900s, combined different facets of each story. And you can actually read about that in Japanese fairy tales. But those are kind of the main um, pieces of literature that we'd be referencing for both these movies and the episode today. So I've been talking a lot. Uh, we're going to turn it over to, I guess, Kyle to talk about the first movie, right? Kyle Bird? Yes. Bird, as I call you. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was quite a mouthful. So The Three Treasures is 1959. Um, what are The Three Treasures, you're asking? Well, in the various stories, um, there is, of course, um, The Sword. And, Kusanagi. Yep. yep. And then um, The uh, Magatama Bead. And the mirror of the sun goddess, um, and uh, I'm not. We'll we'll get into her story because it's pretty much the same in all of these. Um, uh, so those are the actual three treasures themselves. And uh, from what I understand, it's claimed that they supposedly exist and are somewhere, right? Yeah, I think uh, I think in the emperor's possession, I believe is what I read. Yeah, and they're in a box that I don't. Is I don't know. I don't think it's been opened. Correct? They just say it's in the box. You know, it's Japan's uh, Ark, right? Right, right. <laughs> that's yeah. Pretty much what we're dealing with here. <laughs> yeah, that's a, good, that's a good comparison. Um, the Three Treasures was directed by Hiroshi Inagaki, who uh, most people know from a lot of uh, Jidai Geki samurai movies. Uh, probably the most famous being his um, samurai trilogy. Starring uh, Toshiro Mifune, who, if if you like samurai movies, those are like excellent. Um, Criterion put them out. Uh, I I recommend them. Um, and the movie was made uh, to commemorate Toho's one thousandth movie. Um, now uh, the screenwriter uh, Ryuzo Kikushima, he wrote many of Kurosawa's best movies, including uh, Yojimbo. Sanjiro, Hidden Fortress, Throne of Blood, uh, and many more. Um, and the uh, the co-writer Toshio Yasumi is a little more obscure. Uh, I I really couldn't. I looks like he's had little to no uh, films of his released here. Um, so to give us a synopsis, um, and uh, sharp-eared viewers may be able to uh, see where it might deviate from the the myth. Um, but other Kyle, you go ahead and uh, tell us what other this is Kyle. all about. Other Kyle. I'm down with being Other Kyle. Okay, so uh, it's Japan's Shinto origin story, guys. 
This movie begins with the abbreviated version of the Shinto creation myths. We've heard them from Matt, but we're basically in in uh, Birth of Japan. We're introduced to a number of gods at the very beginning of the film. Really, the only ones that matter for the rest of the story are Amaterasu, the sun goddess, and her brother Susano, who is the god of the sea. And then later, you'll hear more about uh, Amaterasu's ex, Tsukiyomi, later. Uh, but we'll fast forward in time past the birth of Japan, where they actually create the islands, to seeing that actually this story is being told to us by an old woman, like an old storyteller in a village. And what the movie doesn't tell you is that uh, where is like basically where we are in Japanese civilization, because in between the birth of Japan, <laughs> where the spear was dipped into the mud, creating the islands, and now Japan has established itself an emperor and has called the land of this emperor Yamato. And uh, <clears throat> the emperor is the prince's father, who we'll be introducing in just a second. These are very ancient times. This is like before the time of the samurai and the ninja. I'd almost say that this is kind of like Conan style in Japan. Conan the Barbarian, kind of. Mm -hmm. Anyway, one of Emperor Keiko's sons, Osu, returns from a hunt. He's played by Toshiro Mifune, who was 39 at this point in his career. Kind of like right in the middle of his career. Your listeners all know who Mifune is, right? Like they We better. don't need to go into his <laughs> I, litany I really so. of movie roles. <laughs> like Seriously, if you don't know who Mifune is, there's a killer documentary about him on Netflix and beyond. Um, so anyway, like I said, Osu and his crew are back from hunting and while they're tossing the bucks, print, the prince overhears about his brother getting a little too much alone time with one of his father's wives. Enraged, Osu is about to kill his brother for betraying their father, but has a change of heart and banishes the horn dog. He then is summoned before his father, thinking he's going to be punished because his father hears the, of the fratricide rumor. There's also there's this evil vizier named Otomu who he plays a larger role in some of the other films. But here he suggests punishing Ozu, uh, Osu for the murder of his brother. But his father is expanding the Yamato territory and decides to send Osu to war with the clan, the Kumaso brothers, um, which I think Kumo or Kuma, it means bear in Japanese. So the bear brothers basically so osu accepts the task and gathers his crew his army is essentially like every toho actor you've ever seen from this era like <laughs> akihiko Hirata plays takihiko and yu fujiki plays okabe yoshio kosugi is the guy who plays the pharaoh island chief in god in king kong versus godzilla he plays inabi another one of these army members i could go on but i'll save some for later before they really get on their way to Kumaso, the army stops at the Issei Shrine, where Osu's auntie is the priestess, the high priestess there. And she knows the truth about Osu and his brother. And as he's leaving, he literally bumps into a shrine maiden, or it says princess in the translation I saw, but it's she's a shrine maiden. Her name's Oto Tachibana, and he is like immediately in love with her. That night, he dances with his men, and there's some weird little side stories that I can only guess have roots in the original writings of this birth of Japan, or the story of Yamato Takeru. At this point, we're meeting more of Osu's entourage, and that includes Yakumo, 
and I mention him as well. I mentioned his character really because his special lady friend in this movie is played by Kumi Mizuno, who was only 22 when this was being made, and she looks young. Like I and I've never actually seen her in like a period piece role, so it was kind of cool to see her in normal Japanese style as opposed to like looking like a cosmopolitan model. <laughs> As the army prepares to leave for Kumaso, the shrine holds a purification ceremony during which uh, the the priestess gives the prince a gift and then Oto, the the shrine maiden, rushes forward and hands the prince a mirror. Back at the emperor's palace, uh, while a fire festival has everyone's attention, including two of Osu's brothers who are played by Akira uh, Takarada and Akira Kubo, the banished brother, the horn dog that Osu banished, he attempts to approach the throne room to clear his younger brother's name, but he's met by that adversarious advisor, Otomo, who decides that the emperor really doesn't need to know the truth and just straight up kills him. And thankfully, now that he's dead, we can completely drop like the Osu versus Osu. Like it's just Osu's the only one left alive. So the army runs across uh, Osu's army runs across the remains of a village that was destroyed by the Kamasu brothers. And Prince Osu takes note of the barbarism of that destroyed village and just vows to kill them all. Later on at the encampment, though, they're approached by the younger of the two Kumaso brothers who's attempting to make friends with Osu. And Sarazawa's uh, actor, Hirata, he acts as the go-between, and it's actually a really frustrating scene because it exemplifies the brashness that Prince Osu embodies. He just completely refuses to listen. He's been given the order to subjugate these people by his father, and he's just not having any of it. So the younger Kubasu brother leaves. He's disappointed, but he understands they're going to have to meet on the battlefield. Now, what the Yamato army did not know is that they are horribly outmatched by the Kumaso army. The emperor has essentially sent Osu to fight this battle with not nearly enough men. It's a suicide mission. So when they find out that Kumaso is throwing a big party, Prince Osu decides to go undercover on his own by dressing up as a dancer to infiltrate the Kumaso good time happy hootenanny. And at the big party, we meet the older of the Kumasu's brothers, who's played by Dr. Yamane himself, Takeshi Shimura. And during one of the dance numbers, he calls one of the dancers to his his side, but it's really Prince Osu. And he straight up assassinates him, just right there, just no fight involved, just knife to the belly. (laughs) And uh, then when that (laughs) scene turns to chaos and Osu has to battle the younger brother, he ends up winning that battle, and as that younger Kumaso brother, young Kumaso, is uh, bleeding on the on the foot of the throne, he suggests that the prince take the name Yamato Takeru, which means the bravest of Yamato, and this throws the prince for a loop because he had, you know, he was so like hell bent on destroying these people, uh, and then. Young Kamaso goes on uh, to admit that he would have murdered his own brother to avoid bloodshed. And that kind of breaks Osu a little bit. And when young Kamaso begs for a swift death, Osu just hesitates and Kumaso just impales himself on Osu's blade. Osu rushes out into the city and proclaims that he, Yamato Takeru, has defeated the Kumaso brothers. 
You see, guys, in ancient times like this, all you had to do was kill somebody to lay claim to all their land. <laughs> Those were the days. Simpler times. <laughs> anyway, there's a brief scene where the army's packing up and this big lout of a man who's, a pre- who's like appeared a couple times throughout the, the movie, he... Uh, he actually plays like the foil for some of the lighter slapstick comedy in the film. He's asking Prince Osu for permission to keep these three women. And I was pleasantly surprised to see Osu take such an anti-human trafficking stance in a 1959 film. Yeah, he really really does. There's, there's a, there's another one of these later on as well that I, that I sort of was like, wow, that was progressive for you at the time. Um, so Osu, I mean, Yamato Takeru travels back home victorious against all odds. But when he's holding court with the emperor, he's ordered to travel to the east and lay claim to all of those domains for Yamato. And, uh, he's super upset by this. (laughs) And, uh, uh, as he's trying to stop his father from leaving the throne room, he's, he's like slamming his fists in the ground and crying. And I wanted to bring this up because, Prince Osu is, or Yamato Takeru is not essentially what I would look to as a heroic character, especially for, you know, someone who grew up here in the West, like a character who's brash, who cries, throws tantrums, rips people apart. That's not someone you'd normally raise up as a, as a lauded hero in our kind of storytelling, but in Japan, guess that's not the case. So Osu uh, will cry more times throughout this podcast, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So but what happens is he uh, he walks through the village, uh, comes across that same old storyteller woman, and she's actually sharing the story of the sun goddess Amaterasu. And it's during this Alan Moore-esque sequence where we hear about the sun goddess, that it switches to the story of the sun goddess being scared off by her brother, Sosano, and she hides in a cave, casting everything into darkness. And this is another spot of the movie filled with Toho's like comedic actors playing all of these little gods or kami. They come up with a plan to coax her back with a dance that will make everybody laugh. And it's supposed to be a vulgar dance, according to the subtitles I saw. <laughs> And uh, when it was all said and done, I was like looking back at it saying, wow, is this like the world's oldest striptease burlesque act happening (laughs) here on stage? (laughs) It is wild. There's like a ton of people sitting around what is essentially like a stage where a single dancer gets up and gets her groove on. And then a guy comes up, looks like he's got the horns for her. And it's just like it's a hilarious little scene, but it definitely works. The sun goddess is coaxed back into uh, out, back out of the cave. And when she comes out of the cave, one of the things that the Kami did is they set up like a sort of they set up a mirror so that when she left with a cave door opened, her light would hit the mirror and it sort of coaxed her out. She was like, what's that light? What's that? Who's this other goddess? And so that's the mirror that we're talking about as part of the three treasures, which is, a, I guess, why it's important to the story. So uh, that mirror is, like I said, one of those three treasures. And I think, is that the mirror that uh, that Prince Osu gets from the Shrine Maiden at the beginning of the movie? I believe so. 
it it made such a like impactful scene when his when he turned to look at it. I was like, that's yeah. got to be important, right? Okay, so that was all part one of this film. Part two, <laughs> <laughs> part two begins at Issei Shrine, where Osu or Yamato Takeru is crying that his father is sending him off on another errand of war, and he's upset that his father doesn't love him, which is totally true. And his auntie is using that opportunity to tell a little story about Susano, who is distraught over the loss of his mother, wanting to find her in the land of the dead. And of course, once again, we're seeing the story play out with uh, Toshiro Mifune acting out the part of Susano, uh, angrily yelling at his father and crying on the beach and slamming his fist down. Anyway... Uh, <clears throat> he's upset that his father doesn't love him. And so just like, just like, uh, Yamato Takeru, his father doesn't love him. Anyway, she tells the story about how Susano's tears dried up the world. Apparently she leaves it at a cliffhanger though. So she can give him the special sword, the grass cutter, uh, the one that was retrieved from Orochi's tail after Susano defeated the monster. Now, the priestess lies to Osu, saying that it is actually a gift from the emperor, but it's not. And she hands him a bag as well and tells him not to open it till he's in trouble. She makes note, however, that these items are only for defense. Osu gets it. He takes off. The, priest, uh, the priestess and the shrine maiden are chatting about Osu. And it's pretty clear that Oto has feelings for Osu. So it's sort of mutual. And the priestess reminds her that she's promised herself to the gods which then totally wrecks Oto, and she goes off to find Osu. <clears throat> now, as Osu shows off his pretty new sword to the army, he tells the tale of Susano slaying the dragon, which is, of course, the pretty much like the big effects scene. There's another big one later, but there's this is the big effects scene of the movie. Uh, I mentioned it earlier. This is where Susano... Actually, Matt mentioned the actual story where Susano... Uh, approaches a family that's upset and finds out that basically this is the eighth year of the eight-headed dragon coming around and demanding a sacrifice. And this family has gone through eight, almost eight daughters. They've gone through seven, and this is their last daughter. And that's where uh, Susano decides to turn her into a comb. He prepares the strongest sake, which uh, we talked about earlier, and the... Um, the trap is set for the eight-headed dragon. And in the film, it's a great scene where it's super moody. Uh, Subaraya, the special effects director, has just done a great job of setting the scene. Unfortunately, I, I'm a little disappointed in how Orochi actually looks in the whole thing. But Orochi comes in, and it's a marionette, right? You've got, mm -hmm. like, each head is on its yeah. own string. I would imagine that at the time, this was probably the most complicated marionette that they'd set up for any tokusatsu stuff. Yeah, but I would think so, they, too. Yeah, I mean, so I can't fault it too much. I mean, they had all eight heads on that thing moving at one time, and so each head goes into the bucket, drinks its, uh, drinks its sake, gets drunk, and falls asleep. Now, this is a difference from the actual story, right? Because in the story, Susano takes the big, long blade that's like, what is it, 10 hands long or something like yeah. that? Anyway, he, he, he just slices the necks of the Yamato right there. But in this movie, 
he goes in for the attack and the monster wakes up. He takes way too long, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> like, so the monster wakes up and then they have a big battle where each of the heads is darting in and trying to get Susano. And eventually he does get the monster's heads sort of tangled up in a tree. And then he's able to start hacking away. And that's sort that is the tale that gets told. And it's kind of a shame that it's such a cool little story to see, but it's just, you can't say much about it. It's like a very brief bit of the, of the overall tale, especially since it's just a little vignette. Anyway, back to our prince Yamato Takeru. See where I'm going here. So as he finishes telling his story, he spots the shrine maiden Oto Osu does, and he runs to her in the woods, suggesting that she accompanies them on their journey because he thinks that she has the hots for him and he has the hots for her. But because she realizes that she's been uh, she's pledged herself to the gods, she says that she can't go. And when he asks why, it's she's she straight up lies to him and says because she hates him. Uh, <laughs> so he he takes the. This is so I, I want you guys help with this for a second. He takes the mirror and he throws it on the ground and storms off. Yes. Right. Yep. I don't remember that mirror getting picked up again. I do not either. So yeah. if my memory is faulty, apologies, but I don't remember the, mem- the mirror getting picked up again. So he walks off and uh, storms off and um, let's see. Da-da-da-da. He continues heading east. But he's, as opposed to the previous, uh, the previous mission where he's been like force first. Now he has realized that these items that he has, they're he's supposed to be using his words first to try and find peaceful uh, subjugation, I guess, before <laughs> he goes to actual war with these people. So he continues east, trying to do this, and as he approaches, um, let's see, where is he? As he approaches the clan of the Awari and attempts to have a peaceful talk with them, the regent princess Miyazu meets with him and essentially poisons his sake before realizing that he is a good guy. Miyazu is played by Kyoko Kagawa, who is a press... uh, She was the press photographer in Mothra, but she is in a ton of movies with Mifune. Mm -hmm. She's an incredible actress, too. It's like, if you ever see some of her other stuff, she's in the Samurai Trilogy, uh, Redbeard... Anyway, yada, yada. Kyoko Kagawa, great to see her in this as well. And so he's somehow okay with the fact that she tried to poison him, but it didn't really work. And they just decide that they should get married, which I thought was an interesting choice. But they, <laughs> they, I mean, that if it works for the clans, right? You got to build up the strength of the clans. That's really the only way I can think that that's going to work. <laughs> You didn't propose to your wife immediately after she tried to murder you? That's not how that worked? (laughs) Well, I mean, I waited a few days, but, you know. (laughs) Anyway, uh, at the exact same time, though, Princess Oto, or, you know, Shrine Maiden Oto, comes to the Osu camp, the Yamato camp, and wants to see Osu. And he refuses, of course, because that's what he does. And uh, she comes in anyway, causes a little bit of a ruckus with his feelings, and... They she tra- ends up traveling with them, even though he doesn't want them want her there with him. And this whole time, uh, Princess Miyazu, who just said that she would marry him, is still into it. She's like, nope, 
I, I'm going to just hold off and wait till he comes back. He's going to come back and we're going to get married. And I have to applaud her, her sense of what should be. I hope, I hope that, uh, in some versions of the story, they, they end up happy ever after, but I don't think they do. <laughs> okay. So before Osu or Yamato Takeru can get to the Ainu people, some scouts from, um, from Yamato are specifically sent by that vizier Otomo. They tell the leader of the Ainu clan that they want him to pretend to accept Yamato Takeru, but really assassinate him. And he reluctantly agrees and tricks Osu into a fake boar hunt. And while they're out in the fields, all the Ainu ditch him and set the fields on fire. And, uh, he's also with, um, also with Oto at the time. So Prince Prince Osu and Oto actually are able to escape from this field fire by using the magic bag from his auntie, which had a magic flint in it. So they escape and they basically decide to head, I think they decide to head back to Yamato because they realize that he's been sort of betrayed. So they hop on these boats, which I can't imagine was really an easy thing to do. So they get on in, at that time in Japan they get on these boats and they're going to sail back down to Yamato. But as the boats are uh, cutting through the water, they encounter a terrible, terrible storm. And the shrine maiden Oto realizes that she has made a huge mistake. She has damned this entire army by coming along and the gods are angry at her. And that's what's creating this uh, terrible storm at sea. She decides that the only way to, to save everybody is to jump overboard, sacrifice herself, and it works. Essentially. She gets off, she jumps off board, the prince is upset, but they continue on. And when they get to, uh, they get, they land, that's when you sort of get to the, this is where it gets really battly. This is where um, one of the, the hallmarks of this film, if you read Stuart Galbraith's, um, history of Toho films. It said that this movie had uh, 5,000 costumes made, including 800 suits of authentic armor, 1,200 swords forged for the picture, and 16,000 bows and arrow sets, all reproduced by experts. That's where this stuff comes into play, because now you're in the war section of the movie. You've got Osu and his men uh, essentially trying to fight for their lives to get back to Yamato and they're fighting their own people really kind of sucks. <laughs> it's not a way to, to want to get welcomed back home. Uh, long story short, which is like, thank God. Now all this fighting <laughs> happens. Osu kind of escapes, but then at the end he is felled. Uh, by the battle and when uh, when he is like literally he's got arrows in him just like is that Rashomon Rashomon where uh, uh, Throne he's of just Blood like the, is the one. Throne of Blood yeah, yeah, where yeah. he's just got they do a much better job at Throne of Blood but yeah he's got arrows sticking out of him I remember when I was watching the scene uh, on my big big TV I was like oh I can see the strings where the arrows are coming from the, <laughs> from the guys up on the ledge but so he gets shot down at this uh, sort of valley and then that's when his uh, his the spirit of the white heron or the white bird comes out of him, and that's what really sets it off. Essentially, that white heron makes the 
volcano in the background explode, which initiates the last giant effects sequence of this film, which is the eruption of this volcano, uh, which erupts all over everybody and (laughs) sends people fleeing. Uh, Also, there's a flood as well, which ends up just destroying people like the I think the lake in front of Mount it says Mount Fuji, right? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So the lake in front of Mount Fuji overflows and floods and kills a bunch of people too. And uh, yeah, that is essentially how the movie ends. The, the actually the movie ends with the last thing that I didn't mention, which was uh, two of the people that we saw earlier, Kumi Mizuno's character, I think her name's Azami, and her fella. Basically, they were not of the same cast, and so they were prevented from loving each other, getting married. And during the movie, that's another thing that um, that Osu does. He's like, "I'm going to get rid of this caste system. You guys are totally able to get married." Yeah, and that did not that did not turn out so well for Japan later. I don't I don't know what happened there, but anyway, there you have it. <laughs> that's how they the the movie actually ends with some of the people from Osu's army reuniting some of the other people from Yamato, including. Kumi Mizuno and her fella, and then the bird flies off into heaven. And that is, in a sense, in a nutshell, as a gigantic nutshell, that is the synopsis of Birth of Japan. You did the Lord's work, man. That, well, that was... I, the, you, the, <laughs> the, the two of you did the hardest part, I think. And, uh, yeah, luckily we're... It, it should be pretty smooth sailing from now on. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but yeah, the this movie's three hours long. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's there, there's quite a bit there. Um, I don't know about you guys. I had seen this before. Um, I think this, yeah, I, I think this might have been my third time ever watching it. The first time yeah. I I watched it with like so, probably the worst subtitles imaginable. It was like you could barely understand it. And then I watched it when better subtitles came out a few years ago, and then I watched it again for this. So, Yeah, I picked my DVD up from, uh, you know, a fan subber, essentially. And I got it a while ago, but not... It, it definitely is one of the more recent movies that I've come to find. Like, even though it's been out for so long, I definitely didn't see it until at least 2010. Yeah. Yeah, that that's probably probably around the same for me um but uh yeah i mean what were your what were you guys's general uh takeaway and feelings about about this movie i liked a lot i love the production values i liked a lot of what the storytelling the story beats it the thing that is obvious is that it's, it's super long and i think the length of some of the fighting sequences, specifically even the the battle with Orochi, the battle at the end, there's just some things that could have been trimmed up. But I like, I actually enjoyed a lot of the politics, the back and forth between how this, you know, this guy behind the scenes is manipulating the father. He's killed the brother and hasn't told anybody. He's sending people ahead of Yamato Takeru to the next village to make sure that, hey, there's going to be a plot to assassinate him. I thought, you know, setting the field on fire and trapping them in that was pretty cool. Um, I do agree with with uh, Kyle Yount that it's weird to say calling you Kyle Yount. I'm like, the other Kyle doesn't feel right. I don't want to call you Yount. I feel like that's maybe 
<laughs> not sure what to call you at this point. Um, but I do agree with Kyle that, like, he kind of mentioned earlier, like, the the Orochi, you know, puppet, um, whatever you would call it, Marinette, it's, it's okay. I don't, I mean, I appreciate what they were going for. There's a lot of cool things to like about it. I do think the battle itself is just, like, Toshiro Mifune, like, swinging his sword repeatedly and moving back and forth in the sand and like there's smoke around his feet and then you pan to a shot of the marionette and it's it's not great um but i do think my 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 major quip with the whole thing is like as beautifully as it's shot and as actually like i think it tells i think it tells the original story really well i just think it's a bit long and it took me i had to sit down two different times to get all the way through it so um yeah that's my initial take yeah, I would. So for me, I would say that this this movie got I got a bunch of stuff I want to say. This movie is important, and it's more important culturally than it is storytelling wise, right? So um, while like my wife asked me, "Oh, was it a good movie?" and I was like, "Well, I wouldn't call it good." It's good, but it's not something that I would be like, dude, you got to watch Birth of Japan. You know, yeah. the 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 hallmarks of this movie are seeing Toho's act just like complete roster of actors all in one film, essentially seeing these immense like crazy cool landscapes, uh, this even the special effects work while we might be dogging on the dragon itself, the rest of it is great. The explosion of the, uh, of the mountain is fantastic. And did, I mean, we'll get into that a little bit during the trivia, but well, also just yeah, the general, really, uh, well like done. set design art direction. I mean, mm -hmm. even in the first mm -hmm. five minutes, you, you can see it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm now I am, even though this is not one of those movies that I would say, dude, you got to see this movie. I am, it internally begging for this to be released on Blu-ray so I can see oh, it. Oh yeah, in its I would. I would glory. snatch it up. I, I think, yeah, a, a, a Blu-ray restoration of this would be amazing. And I, I might be wrong, but I seem to remember at some point Criterion at least had the rights to it, um, but it hasn't shown up on their streaming streaming service. I don't believe so. I mean, I don't know what happened there, but mm. this would be a this would be a perfect candidate for them. I mean, they've done a lot of. Inagaki's other Toho films, and I mean, who wouldn't who wouldn't want to see that? I mean, it's, since this is a uh, post, you know, when re the fabric of reality just went insane, we we might have to deal with whatever goofy looking transfer <laughs> Toho gives them. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm with you. I I would totally uh, get a Blu-ray of this. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you guys on the length. I, I do think, I mean, it's one of those things where if you're really into this stuff, um, like our friend Justin that gave us all those uh, notes and stuff about the actual mythology, um, I guess I, I really don't know his opinion on the movie, but I, I, if you're as into this kind of stuff as him, I, I, you would pro this is probably going to hit a lot more of the sweet spots for you than, than it, it did for us, I would think. Um, yeah, it's interesting that this is like a it's like a period drama, but when I think period drama from Japan, I don't think this far back, you know, like 
So to me, this is way more of just like a fantasy film. Mm-hmm. And it, as a fantasy film, I feel like it doesn't really deliver on the fantastical. But the breadth of what they're doing in this movie, me, it's a it's it should be better known. Like, I'm shocked that more people don't have access to this movie. Yeah. And if you look at Inagaki's filmography, he doesn't he's not insanely prolific but most of those movies are available or, or kind of known uh, stateside in some way but yeah mm-hmm. this one just kind of languishes in obscurity and it it might be just because it's so culturally dense i mean uh i i i think the the movie that people compare this to the most at least in america is the 10 commandments you know, mm-hmm. but like imagine a Japanese person, you know, with no real education on like re- the religions here sitting down to watch the Ten Commandments. You know, they would they would be just as like lost <laughs> as, yeah. as some people yeah. might for this. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely for people that are really familiar and really into, um, you know, the the kind of old Shinto myths and, and, and things like that. Um, I, 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 I get what you, what you're, I, I'm pretty much in agreement with, uh, what you said about the Orochi puppet. Um, I do think it, at least as far as, you know, the Kaiju stuff it, it at the time, like we got to remember this is before King Ghidorah, like this is mm-hmm. 1959. Um, yeah. I, I do agree with you and, the theory that for the time it was probably pretty pretty wild pretty innovative and i would imagine that subaraya and and them maybe were able to look at some of the things that uh, might not have worked with that and you know use that as a learning curve when they they were doing um Ghidorah. uh there's uh, but the uh, it's more the the scenes shot great. It's got a lot of atmosphere. But yeah, it's like you guys said, the actual fight itself is a little underwhelming because it's mostly a shot of the puppet, and then it cuts to Mufune like swatting at the air, and <laughs> there, there's not enough shots of them together in the frame. It, this is one of those situations where I would say, you know, obviously they they probably couldn't do it because you know as much money and stuff as this had it still doesn't have the time and money as say a Harryhausen film but like you know compare that to the Jason and the Argonauts when he's fighting the the Hydra like this is one of those things that maybe something like stop motion would have been a little more uh preferable at, at, at this time period or um, even like rear screen projection you right, know just right. like get yeah. him in the frame with the monster yep. and it is really like it's such a small nitpick almost but I feel like it's one of those nitpicks that kaiju fans are going to watch this movie and go, wait, that was it? That was all I get in this <laughs> yeah. entire movie is this little tiny <laughs> scene with the – because I said that when I first watched the movie the very first time. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, that's not as exciting as Yamato Takeru was. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know what I was thinking though, and I, I thought this, I think the last time I, I, I watched this as well, um, not just in terms of the length, but structurally, like it's kind of weird that it goes in and out of these lengthy 
vignettes. You know, I, I was thinking maybe like you could do this as maybe like an anthology where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, have like the story of Osu bookend, you know, the two other stories like the sun goddess and the, uh, the Orochi part. And in, instead it, the, the structure is kind of weird. Um, in that like just randomly you're just put into a, another story that'll last upwards of like 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah. That threw me for a loop the very first time I watched it because I did not understand that, Oh, the person that is talking now was just telling you the story that you just heard. For some reason it didn't click with me and it wasn't until I saw the movie a second time that I was like, Oh, it is all one tale, but it's like Alan Moore's Watchmen where all of a sudden you're hearing a story about, a pirate in the middle of your superhero tale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then, like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I I guess I, I can give them props for being thorough, but some of the subplots in Osu's story, I, I don't really think, at the end of the day, contribute too much. Like, um, the the actress from Mothra and like his almost marriage with her, mm-hmm, like you could mm-hmm. probably cut that out and it wouldn't make too much of a difference. I wouldn't think like, uh, so yeah, stuff like that. I think I wonder if like, that's what they did when they actually released it as the cut version in the States, like at the yeah. Toho theaters, like what did they cut from that movie? Yeah, I would, it, I would think it would have to be stuff like that. Um, Overall, like I, I wouldn't say I don't like it, um, but it's it's one of those things that I don't know. Like I honestly, like I don't know when I'm gonna ever feel like rewatching it. Will I rewatch mm-hmm. it in my lifetime? I mean, assuming I live to a normal, <laughs> a normal, nice <laughs> old age, you know, I might watch it uh, again. But like, it's not the kind of thing that the next time I watch it, it's probably gonna be far away enough from now that. I would look at it and be like, you know, I don't really remember that movie that well. Like, I'll I'll pop it in. Like, this isn't something that I would really be going back to. Um, and it, it's more something that I would recommend to people with, like, specific interests relating to it, you know. Um, I, if you're just here to see the, the, the giant monster, I mean, <laughs> I watch... This is now the movie. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah don't, you know, don't watch this one, yeah. if if you really like Japanese period pieces and uh, have interest in you know the the Shinto religion and those stories, I mean, yeah, you'll probably eat it up. But um, if if you don't fall in that wheelhouse, you know, you your your mileage is going to vary. Totally agree. Yeah, if you don't have a fascination for Japan, right? Like, yeah. that's sort of you. You sort of have to be interested in this birth of japan story in order to even buy a ticket for this movie right yeah like the the other two movies we're gonna talk about i think by design are supposed to be a little bit easier to swallow but this one is just very dense very culturally specific and um yeah unless unless that appeals to you you're probably not gonna get much um you know we also didn't talk about um Ifukube's uh, score, which I think is great. It's, yeah, it's very, very moody. Uh, you'll get a lot of stuff that would be precursors to other themes you would hear in the Godzilla and other 
kaiju films. It's it's really good. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, Fukubei to me is he never has a bad score, and this is certainly no no exception to that. Yeah, his Orochi theme is really good, and then the the opening title theme is really good. Um, so yeah, I mean, like you guys said, this is really just like they really put every their top talent in place for this thing. Absolutely, yeah. Did you guys want to talk about some trivia of this movie? All right, well, I, I think... Well, let's go ahead. Let's give our ratings. Um, All right. Let's the see. Uh, how many... Uh, hmm. What's a good scale for this? I'm just going to give this one five out of eight dragon heads. <laughs> All right, five <laughs> out of eight would be... Let's see. If you would just... Five out of eight... Well, I see what you're doing, but... See, that's throwing off my math. <laughs> Two and a half out of four, but then you got to make it. <laughs> All right. Well, my mine is three out of five uh, drunk dragons. And uh, for those, I mean, if, if I was really into this, I could see this being like way higher. But just a matter of taste for me, um, I give it a three. Yeah, I'm also at uh, three out of five drunken dragons. I think what people will find either really interesting or maybe, um, I wouldn't say off-putting, but just kind of taken aback would be like the, the intro and all the the differences and the gods that come in. And then like they don't really talk about the gods it's a ton after that. They're kind of like sort of forgotten about for, for times. Mm-hmm. And then the back yeah. and forth be- between that. So like those are things that I actually do find interesting. And I think the film is beautifully shot. It's just my, my major gripe is like, there's stuff that could have been trimmed out. And um, yeah, so three out of five drunken dragons. I guess technically speaking, that would be, if I was going to do that, what did I say? Six out of, did I say five out of eight? I don't remember what it was, yeah. but yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll jump on board and I'll say three out of five drunken dragons as well. And Yes, people should absolutely seek it out, especially if they are looking to fill holes in their tokusatsu collection, and especially if they are interested in Japanese mythology. There are references to the the birth of Japan story and Sasano and Yamato Takeru. Like, their the references are everywhere. It's all throughout anime. Like, there you could probably do an entire podcast on just the references throughout culture. So like, I think that part is, is really interesting and it certainly makes this movie as kind of as, as uh, Kyle said, like it is important to, to, to think of it in that context. So definitely at least seek it out if that would have any interest for you. Um, all right. So hit us with some trivia. All right, man. So, uh, in May, before this film was released, Subaraya came up with the Toho Versatile process, which was a modification of their optical printer that he designed to use with his widescreen color films. And because of that, he was awarded the Japanese Motion Picture Technical Award for that achievement. This was Toho's most profitable profitable film of the year and the second highest grossing domestic film of 1959. The film was released in the U.S., as we talked about earlier, the trimmed 112-minute version in art house theaters. I think specifically I read the, the Toho La Brea Theater in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, little is known about that edit of the film. Has, I really want to know now, has anybody even ever called 
Toho's office in yeah. LA to say, where is this uh, international version of this movie? Yeah. I don't even know if uh, anyone's cared enough to ask. Yeah. <laughs> Someone should care enough. Also, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the Orochi design was obviously utilized by Akira Watanabe, the creature designer from the Showa era, to create King Ghidra, uh, in addition to Tsuburaya taking his own inspiration from Orochi. The Mount Fuji miniature was a 15-foot replica that was made in the big pool since it was the only place big enough to have it. Gunpowder was used to blow off the top and vats of molten lead were poured out <laughs> to simulate lava, which was then filmed in slow motion with several cameras. Oh, I did notice there were several uh, effects shots in this movie where they had like... Um, multiple cameras around all filming at the same time because when they showed the earthquake and the the destruction there's one shot where somebody's falling into a ravine and i noticed that the the actors around that ravine always had the same reaction whenever <laughs> they showed it from the different angles uh yeah and then 10 tons of water were used for the flood scene apparently it's pretty sweet um so we're going to pivot from trivia to talking about some of the biggest differences between the movie and the um the myth itself so this of course this movie combines the telling of both yamata takeru and sasano but honestly it's pretty faithful to the original stories i think the main difference is the way that yamata takeru dies at the hands of his enemies he's obviously shot and felled in battle shot with arrows in the back um they do still have him turn into a bird at the end as in the original story and then um, the Kusanagi, this is more of a probably a note than uh, biggest differences, but the Kusanagi is extremely important in Japan because it's actually one of the three sacred imperial um, reglia. I'm not sure if I'm even saying that name right, but we kind of talked about this earlier. They still supposedly exist today in the emperor's keep, and they actually are used to, legitima to legitimize the emperor's right to rule. And then the two other objects would be the mirror that is used to lure Amaterasu out of her cave. Um, and then that's actually another myth. That's that's one of the other myths that are depicted in this in the movie Three Treasures. And then the Megatama jewels, which, of course, those little crescent-shaped amulets would be used by Asagi to communicate with Gamera and the Kaneko films, whose so last name is Kusanagi. Well, there you go. <laughs> Mind's blown. Full, full circle. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's a pretty faithful retelling of the original story. There are some some differences but one thing to keep in mind like the stories that i told at the very beginning of this episode like those are snippets of the overall story itself like those are like the, it's like the genesis of like in the bible essentially like it's one book out of a whole huge story and that's kind of what the two little snippets of story we gave you because there's so much more that these movies are actually pulling from um we just it's it's would be impossible to actually go into all that but yeah i think it's yeah does a really I feel good like job all, all three of these movies are like someone took a giant scroll and said, here's the story. This is the birth of Japan, the tale of Yamato Takeru. Here it is. And they roll it out. And then the producer looks at it and goes, well, we can't put all that in one movie. So take that bit, that bit, that bit, that bit. And so each of these films just chooses which parts to tell and they weave it together in creative ways, right, to, to make the slight differences. That is a much better way to say that what I was trying to say. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to move to 
the next film, Little Prince and the Eight-Headed Dragon? Let's do it. So this is uh, 1963 um, from Toei. Um, Toei Animation. Um, which is, uh, this is a fairly early attempt uh, at, at an animated feature for them. Um, but Toei Animation would, and continues to this day, to be a powerhouse in, in anime. Um, in terms of this movie specifically, um, the director, Yugo Serikawa, would later produce shows like Messenger Z and Galaxy Express 999. Is that how you say it? Or is it like uh, triple nine, 999? I think it's 999. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I've actually never watched it. I know what it is. It's like I've seen the, the poster art for it. It wasn't but I'm, until... Like, I'm born into Mazinger. Yeah. Well, it wasn't until like a few months ago that uh, the, the Kamen Rider series, the, the Kamen Rider OO, is supposed to be Kamen Rider double O, I think. It's like... Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I never know how to say this stuff. Um Anyway, uh, this is also the first Japanese movie to have an animation director credit, which went to Yasuji Mori, and he would uh, become a huge part of Toei Animation. Um, two, uh, the two assistant directors were Kimio Yab- uh, Yabuki, who would later be a huge part of Toei Animation as well. Um, probably Puss in Boots is one of his more iconic works. Um, and the other one is... Um, uh, Isao Ta- Takahata, um, which if anyone is familiar with Studio Ghibli, that name should be familiar because he co-founded that uh, studio and directed films like Pom Poco and Grave of the Fireflies. And uh, Little Prince and the Eight-Headed Dragon is considered one of the vital uh, building blocks in the formation of, of Ghibli Studios. Um, and, uh, at the time it had a pretty original and innovative look to it. Um, this is before Osamu Tezuka came in, uh, and applied his aesthetic to animation. And it was a departure from the more kind of, uh, Walt Disney-esque, uh, animation. Um, so it has a very abstract look that combined, um, you know, the kind of, uh, Japanese screen print, uh, painting, uh, and modern art styles and blended them together. So a lot of like kind of blocky shapes. Um, and uh, it would become one of the most uh, revered Japanese animated films ever made. Um, uh, it's, it's really one that is considered uh, one of the very best um, and one of the most original. So uh, Matt, why don't you tell us uh, what this version uh, has to say about, uh, about this story? So we're following uh, Princess Anna, and thankfully, this synopsis will be nowhere near as long as the original story we told or what we just went through like five minutes before this. So um, I'm going to do my best to be as concise as possible. So Princess Anna's mother dies, and when his father tells him, by the way, the mother is, it's the, um, he's an Agi and he's a Naki we're talking about here. So Sasano's mother dies, and when his father is telling him that she has gone to another place, he basically sets off in search to, uh, to find her. And so he has these sort of like quest to get there. He builds a boat and he goes uh, out to sea. Um, he goes to see his brother who has this like crystal palace in the land of night. Um, he causes a bunch of damage to the palace, but his brother still gives him a magic ice crystal, which he will later use in the battle against Orochi. He goes and he fights a fire god who ends up giving him 
the magic bird again the magic bird being something that we would see from the previous film um sasana defeats him with help with the magic crystal and he has uh one thing i didn't know at the very beginning is this kind of has like i don't the thing that comes to mind would be like tarzan right he's just he's always around these little animals he's got this rabbit sidekick that goes everywhere with him and kind of helps him during battles in different times um sasano picks up another traveling companion it's like this uh dumb villager guy that's kind of worthless and he trembles at everything and as they're going on their quest he also goes to see his sister in this case that would be amaterasu in the land of light um as with his brother he causes a bunch of unintentional damage he's trying to he's like always trying to do the right things but his rambunctious nature and his sort of just like doesn't think anything through and just goes for it he ends up doing more damage than good um, and his sister, Matarasu, who happens to also be the son, she eventually goes off and she hides off in the cave. And then, of course, this retells the story from the previous film where the villagers actually stage a party. There is a dance and then they lure her back outside the cave and they trick her to come outside again. And there's the mirror and everything. Um, and then, of course, this takes us to kind of the film's climax where he goes and he actually finds the young girl who, in this case, reminds him of his mother. And then we recant, uh, we recount like the, the story of him fighting Orochi. But this time he has to actually uh, fetch a magic uh, horse, pe Pegasus, that can fly. And so the Pegasus and he defeat uh, Orochi together in a really, honestly, pretty just great battle, battle sequence. So, and that's, that's the, the, the gist of this particular movie. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I think also like, my initial thoughts since I'm already blabbing here, like the, the animation is great. Like I can see why this was such a foundational piece for studio Ghibli. Like it's just, everything is, is well put together. It's really enga engaging. I actually watched this with my son Landon and like he loved it and ate it up. So like, it was just a lot of fun to watch from start to finish. And it's, it's brisk. I mean, it's not, not terribly long. And so like, I really appreciated that about it. Did you watch the dub or the subtitled one? We did watch it subbed, and okay. I was kind of telling him what was going on in passing. But like the thing about watching this with him is the animation really held his attention, and like he was laughing at the jokes. Like whenever an animal would do something stupid, there's like that tiger sequence at the beginning where the tiger is chasing the rabbit or whatever, and like he was he was yeah. cackling at some of the stuff there. Beats the shit out of a tiger. Yeah, he does. He slaps him around. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you might notice how much shorter <laughs> that synopsis is than uh, Thank God. the actual <laughs> uh, myth and the three treasures. And um, like I said, after after that three treasures synopsis, we were over the the the, the hump there. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, the, this it does do a good job of taking that general story and just stripping it down to very simple form. <laughs> Um, so not only, not only so kids can enjoy it, but also, you know, people like us who are, uh, on the other side of the country can, can kind of, you know, watch this story without all of this baggage that, that we've been talking about. Um, I think it does a, a pretty good job of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I really like the, just the overall design, uh, the animation, um, and, uh, yeah, this is this is one that um, uh, doesn't deal with Osu or Yamato Takeru. This is just uh, Prince Susano. So um, that's probably where it differs from the other two the most. Um, but yeah, no, this was was fun. I, I think maybe um, 
stuff like the talking animals. I, I mean, I think that might be a little bit of the Walt Disney kind of influence there, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's really, uh, interesting in terms of the stuff that was out at the, at the time. Um, and, uh, its influence has been kind of felt all over the world and we'll get into some of the more, um, the more prevalent examples of that in a minute. But, uh, my favorite things about it though, are, um, the, the, the actual battle with Orochi is great. And then, um, once again, we have a score by Akira Ifukube, which, um, honestly is just wonderful. I, I, this might be one of my favorite scores of his, um, I, and especially the way that the, the music and the action are cut together during that battle, that battle at the end is, is just marvelous. Um, Mr. Yount, how do you feel about it? So this movie, I actually really, really, really love the the look of this movie. In fact, I'd say the look of this movie is by far and above like the best part about it. Another movie I'm totally willing to just throw down the bucks for a Blu-ray of, you know, just to see this as beautiful as it can be. The actual stripping down of the story, like you like you mentioned, I actually didn't have an issue with that. I thought it was pretty good, and I think that this movie um, is a much more attractive runtime than the other films do, especially <laughs> especially because of the medium. And it's a I, anyway. This is another one that I think a lot of people probably don't even think about, even when they're thinking about Tokusatsu stuff, because it's an animated film. But the Akira Ifukube music elevates this into something that everyone should at least be aware of, as far as I'm concerned. And yeah, the fact that this has an English dub makes it well could make it somewhat accessible depending on who could release it here in the States. But yeah, great, great film, great, great visuals and uh, great music. I think if you have kids, like it's worth watching with your kids. Landon had a blast watching it. And like, that's to me as a parent, like I always get some sense, a, a sense of joy when like I'm watching something and he's just glued to the television. And so like, for me, that was a lot of, a lot of fun but yeah if you have kids like it's worth checking out and it's a lot of fun i, I do think that the climactic battle at the end is like just really it's really well handled and they do some interesting things with it and like there's a whole sequence where like the pegasus is flying around the rochi and the heads are like getting tangled up and stuff it's a lot of fun that's the best out of the three for sure yeah i, I agree with that wholeheartedly um so how many what's what's a good scale for this bird um <laughs> Uh, how many horribly beaten tigers <laughs> would you give this <laughs> out of five? Uh, I'm going to go three and a half bordering. Honestly, yeah, four. I'm just going to say okay. four. Like it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm going to stick with three and a half, but I mean, the score is great. Um, it works for both its intended audience and I mean, it's just for, for kids and just, Adults, so it's a good family kind of film. Um, if the the dub is out on like a crappy full screen pan and scan DVD and a set a set that Mill Creek put out, it's a shame it's not available in like a nice pristine dual language Blu-ray, mm. <laughs> which is crazy because I guess even in Japan it it hasn't had too much um, in terms of home video releases. Uh, so, but that does kind of give you an idea of just when it came out, the kind of ripples it caused, um, uh, 
uh, apparently it was a success here too. You know, like I said, it did get a, a dubbed release, and um, uh, but yeah, uh, there's just a lot of really great sequences. Um, uh, another one of my favorites was the the dance scene. You know, to lure the the sister out was really well done. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, between that point and getting to Orochi, you could probably trim it up a few minutes. Um, uh, as it is, it's still a short movie, but I think um, there's a little break in there that felt kind of awkward to me. But uh, no, it's really well done, and um, it's it's super solid, and yeah, I, I really hope it gets a, a good release. Um, Kyle, did you give your rating yet? Oh, I didn't give my rating. I'd totally give this a four out of five. And right. in, in my opinion, this one is, it's more attractive than birth of Japan, you know, like, and, uh, even just looking at the cover art right now, I'm like, this is not, this is like for people listening, if they don't know what we're talking about, this is not typical anime style. This is very fluid, very well-made and like just very stylistically different. It's such a cool, cool style. I love it. Um, all right. So, well, to give people that might not know what we're talking about a point of comparison, um, oh, I don't have anyone for trivia on this. I guess I'll do it. Um, so, uh, <laughs> talking about kind of uh, some of the more um, famous, I guess, examples of where you can see the influence of this art style. Um, the first uh, that probably people here would recognize a lot is, um, uh, is it Gendi? Gendi? This is another name that I've read a million times and never said out loud. <laughs> um, I don't know. But uh, uh, Tartakovs- Tartakovsky, um, who did uh, just a-, a crap ton of famous cartoons, including... Um, stuff like uh dexter's lab and the clone the pre-cgi clone wars um uh and uh primal uh but um and also samurai jack which is probably where you'd be able to see it the most but i i I can sense a little bit of little prince in all of that i think in kind of the kind of blocky character shapes and and things like that that's all a direct uh, influence back to this is a movie that really um, had an impact on him. Uh, similarly, um, uh, Yuichi uh, Kotabe was a character animator on on this movie, and he would use this as inspiration for the art direction for The Legend of Zelda: The Wind Walker. Um, so, any of you Zelda uh, fanatics out there, uh, maybe that'll give you an idea. Um, the, the, the battle between Sasano and Orochi took six months to animate with over 300 cuts and 10,000 frames, all syncing to Ifukube's music. Um, and Ifukube worked very closely with the director on timing the music um, to that scene. Uh, and this, uh, this is uh, the only time in his life that Ifukube scored uh, for animation. Um, but you can hear um, he reuses bits from the the Mysterians march. You can hear that at the very recognizable at the end uh, during the fight with Orochi, and um, then other cues would be recycled um, for for later kaiju films, including 
Uh, there's bits that you'll hear in uh, in uh, Ghidra. There's bits. I think there's some stuff from King Kong Escapes. There's there's a lot of little things that um, he'll uh, he'll rework later on. Um, so Matt, uh, why don't you tell us some of the big differences between this and the actual story? So in this film, uh, Sasana was depicted as a little kid or child and. Uh, the reason that he leaves heaven and comes to earth is because he is so upset over the death of his mother and his mother in this case being his Nami. And he decides to go and find her. That's one of the biggest differences. And then his father, uh, Ina, uh, Zaga or Inazaki, excuse me, is, um, continuously warning him like, Hey dude, you cannot find her. Like he grabs him and has, he gives him a stern talking to, as they say. And, uh, he just, Sasano kind of refuses to listen and sets on his quest anyway. And that's kind of like this little kid's mentality. He's always trying to do the right thing, but also is kind of cantankerous about it and getting himself into more trouble than he should. Also, I think that's kind of part of his charm. Um, He's a brat. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And then, but it's it's one of those weird things where like he eventually finds his way at the end. So that's kind of cool. Um, that that particular plot point is actually based on an element of the story uh, for Sasano found in the Kojiki. So what's happening is the the idea that he actually leaves heaven to find his mother. They're kind of uh, Toei as a studio is kind of conflating the Sasano story from earlier with with the Sasano story about him leaving about uh, leaving heaven to, to search for his mother. Um, and then the brother that lives in the land of light is actually. Uh, Suki Yomi, who we'll talk about in the next one quite a bit more, but um, and the sister in the land of light is Amaterasu. So the brother's land of night, and the sister is from the land of uh, land of light. And we'll talk more about both of those in the next film. Um. Okay. <clears throat> so. Um. In the next movie, we have once again. Um, uh, kind of going back to what the Three Treasures did with drawing a lot of parallels between Osu and uh, Sasano. Um, Matt, did we have some notes about that, don't we? Somewhere? Uh, yeah, I think at the end of this, I have some... Okay. I have more notes about... Um... Yeah, we, we, we okay. got it, do Okay, so, um, so Yamato Takeru, 1994. Um, the impetus goes... Back to the early 90s, um, Toho was looking to start another tokusatsu franchise uh, as Godzilla's return at this point was successful enough for them to consider that. Uh, And they hired um, Wataru Mimura, who wrote a lot of the Heisei and Millennium Godzilla films, including um, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla... um, Godzilla vs. Megaguirus, Final Wars, he, and more. Uh, he's He was one of the main writers for, for the Godzilla series. And um, he wanted something a little bit more akin to the American Conan the Barbarian movies. Um, and it, it was originally pitched as a straight remake of The Three Treasures. Uh, and the idea was to kind of make it a trilogy of, of movies. Um, and then it kind of shifted away into other directions uh, from The Three Treasures. Uh, but with it being a, a proposed trilogy, uh, he wanted to focus uh, the first one mainly on the relationship between Yamato Takeru and Odo uh, Tachibana. Um, 
and uh, the director uh, uh, was um, Takeo Okawara, who did a lot of the Heisei <coughs> Godzilla movies. Um, he did uh, Mothra, Mechagodzilla, Destroya, uh, and he also did Godzilla 2000. Uh, and his approach was he wanted to not do it as a straight period piece, but more as a futuristic drama um, imagined by people that would have lived back then. So people in that time period, if they imagined what the future would look like, I guess this is what he thinks they would think of for some reason. Um, so uh, this one is, uh, in on paper, straightforward. Um, the movie, and we'll talk about it, the movie itself just is it's one of those movies where things just kind of happen just because the story needs them to rather than there being any kind of well thought out reason. Um, so this one, uh, it probably takes the biggest shift from the previous two. So we have twin brothers that are born and, uh, uh, I I guess twins are seen as a, a bad omen. So, um, the Kings, uh, or I guess the emperor, his, uh, his creepy, assistant guy recommends that they drop one of them one of the babies off a cliff uh as you as you do um and (laughs) and uh the the baby is is grabbed by the uh the bird of light uh i forget its its name name but uh and then it it takes the baby to uh its uh its aunt's house so uh, his aunt raises him, and uh, <clears throat> then we we kind of uh, flash forward to um, him as a teenager, I believe, and he is uh, he's in a forest training, doing like combat training with two people who uh, we don't know who they are. Uh, and the movie will never tell us who they are, um, but they're they're two people that would be his sidekicks throughout the whole film. One of whom has a uh, a staff that shoots magic, glowy green stuff. Uh, we don't know how or why he can do that, and we never will. Um, and uh, while they're doing this training, uh, the kid is he's uh, like vaporized and sucked into this hole. And in there is, uh, I guess it's supposed to be Susano's, um, like, throne room or something? Anyway, so he's like, hey, kid, like, you're, this, it kind of gets into that kind of Joseph Campbell, like, chosen one thing. He's like, you know, you're destined for all this stuff, and here, have a magic bead. And then uh, he gives him uh, the, the, the Magatama bead that we've talked about. And then uh, uh, we have another time jump where he is an adult, and um, he is uh, going to be pardoned. Or wait, this is, is this before or after his mom dies? His mom ends up getting ill and dying. I think he's still, he's an adult when that happens. Am I wrong? Uh, he comes back to the emperor's house and like right almost as soon as he gets back home. Yeah. That's it, when his mom dies. Yeah, yeah. His mom just, it, she's fine. And she's like, oh, welcome home. And then 
like late like, like, like the next day yeah, yeah like the next <laughs> yeah. day she she dies so <laughs> and she, all all the movie tells it's us pretty is pretty freaking she, suspicious yeah all, I mean, all the movie tells yeah. us is that she's fallen ill and then um his brother blames him and then they get into a fight and um uh the white bird of the heavens i guess is what 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 they they call it but anyway um his brother uh osu goes he he just freaks out about it and he attacks osu and uh, osu kills his brother and then um his dad is furious about it and um so that's when we get into the kind of familiar uh plot thread of him sending osu uh to um uh take down this I guess tribe of barbarians um because uh you know the idea is that he'll get killed and then uh, one of the nephews can ascend uh where where he was supposed to uh <clears throat> be and then they uh so uh then Osu and his two friends uh who we don't know anything about they come by a shrine where they meet uh uh Odo Tachibana, uh, who would be his love interest, just as in, um, you know, the Three Treasures. And uh, for some reason, she can shoot fireballs. Uh, Again, the movie never tells us why. Um, At one one point, another character says, you know magic? And that's that's it. So... (laughs) It's a pretty good explanation. (laughs) Um, So then... uh, so the four of them, uh, they're they're taking a rest, and uh, this stranger um, comes and he says, like, "Hey, you know, uh, you know, I'm letting you stay out here. You know, I'm giving you some food. Uh, my daughter here is gonna be sacrificed uh, by that by that tribe. Like, would you mind if like I kept her home and you guys went and did that <laughs> instead?" And then they're like. Uh, and then the the this sounds made up, but they literally just go, "Of course we will." So then it goes to the next day, and they sneak in. Um, and then this is uh, again where we're getting into kind of familiar territory. Um, uh, so they they sneak in with disguises. Um, uh, <clears throat> Osu is uh, disguised as a woman, just like uh, we we've heard about, um, and. Uh, the Odo, she like puts some gross. Uh, well, I guess it's like that. It's like that stuff that um, I think it's supposed to be like that stuff that concubines would put on their teeth, which was actually supposed to make them prettier. Um, but oh, she I thought like, it was like ash from the lamp oil or something like oh, that. Oh, it might be. It might be. It's one of those two things. Uh, I'm sure someone <laughs> will write in and tell us. Someone will write in and tell us it's probably neither, and we're all morons. Um, Anyway, so she intentionally makes herself look ugly so he doesn't pick her as a sacrifice. Um, very heroic, right? Uh, so, uh, anyway, um, Osu reveals himself, and uh, him and his, his two companions, a big brawl breaks out, and they're fighting these, uh, these, these barbarians, and, uh, you know, it's a big swashbuckling sword fight scene. Um, and then... Uh, Osu ends up killing uh, Kumasu, just like, again, we heard about before, and he he gives him the name Yamato Takeru, so he's Yamato Takeru now. 
And uh, he's like, wait, where's Odo? And he's like, she's about to be sacrificed. So we don't know when they found out that she was actually not super ugly and when they decided to choose her. Uh, so she's chained up and she's like, she's damsel in distress, chained up uh, like Anne on Skull Island. Uh, and the big lava god Kuma, Kumasogami comes out and um, he's this big lava monster and he uh, <clears throat> can like, his hands can morph into weapons and they, uh, they have a, a surprisingly lame fight with him where he just kind of slowly like s- takes a, a swing at Osu <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that lasts for a few minutes and then they defeat him and then they uh, they rescue her and uh, is this when they come across the mirror? Yes. Yeah. They come across yeah, the mirror. Um, uh, because earlier Odo Tachibana uh, her and her family were explaining to them, like, hey, our magic mirror just, like, disappeared. We don't know where it went. And then they kill the lava god, and it's like, oh, my gosh, what a crazy, like, thing is that <laughs> it tur- this, he turned into the... He, he, the mirror was here all along. Um, and then that's when we get some gobbledygook about how they're on the way to their destiny, and uh, it's. I think it's the movie's way around trying to explain things. They just say whatever happens to us, it's happening because it was our destiny all along. So your reason for the mirror ending up there is just it, cause, reasons. Um, so they uh, they kind of continue their journey, and then um, uh, <clears throat> uh, they continue to the next uh, set piece, which is where uh, they <clears throat> are at sea. Um, uh, the the creepy, weird um, assistant guy uh, to the emperor, he is, uh, he is uh, calls upon uh, Kaishin Muba, so uh, the sea god Muba, to, um, uh, I guess, disrupt them at sea. And uh, <clears throat> he uh, uh, fights Odo and Osu and... Um, uh, they they have a an underwater battle, um, where uh, she uh, and again this is also getting into things that we're more familiar. Uh, she ends up dying um, to save Osu, and then he brings her back to life. Um, but yeah, when when he gets to uh, the shore uh, creepy guy is waiting for him, and he stabs him through the neck. Um, and uh, uh, Osu wakes up, and he finds that his wound is healed because um, magic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then we uh, we're, we're, we start to get into kind of. Um, I guess the third act, and then uh, in a, he's woken up in Sasano's throne room that he was in uh, all those years ago, and Sasano comes out, and he says uh, that Osu um, has his spirit. He's like, hey, my spirit's in you. And then um, Odo, uh, uh, he says that she has the spirit of the sun goddess, and he's like, you guys are kind of like, uh, you know, they live on through you, so that's why you guys are all powerful and whatever. Um, and then, uh, is that when he gives him the sword? Yeah. 
I think that's when he gets the sword. He, yeah, he pulls the sword out finally. Yeah, so like... so yeah, that's that's when he gets um, uh, the sword, and then uh, so so what we do learn is that the the emperor's uh, right hand man has been uh, communicating with and uh, uh, um, uh, Orochi, who in this is uh, <coughs> Sukuyomi who we saw in um, Little Prince and the Eight-Headed Dragon as the, the, the ice, the guy in the ice yep. dungeon, um, who uh, was his, in in the myth and in that film is uh, Osu's brother. And this, he is not Osu's brother, I, I don't believe. But um, the gods had banished him um, to uh, the moon. And... <clears throat> So he's been like trying to make a comeback. Um, he was uh, so that that was uh, that we learned that ten thousand years ago, um, uh, he was uh, the lord of the underworld and god of the moon, um, and uh, he was jealous of his sister who was the sun goddess, um, and uh, he w- transformed into the creature Orochi. And, uh, you know, terrorized uh, the Earth. Um, and <clears throat> so, uh, uh, Susan, they do say that Sasano slayed him and pulled the, the sword out of his tail. Um, and then, so he's banished in this, like, ice crystal, space Godzilla crystal-looking, floating... Like a, a mix between space Godzilla and the Fortress of Solitude. <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> So, so he is, uh, uh, um, he, he is, uh, I guess, um, because of, uh, reasons he is, is, you know, he's, he's coming back. And so, um, our, our heroes are, are warned about that. And, uh, <clears throat> so, um, they are like transport. So he gets, to the- he's on the moon and our heroes are transported to the moon. Just <laughs> I- cause, um, and then, uh, and then that's where they confront him in his little like crystal ice palace. And, um, uh, so then he transforms into the eight headed dragon, Orochi, and then uh, our heroes um, combine into uh, Yutsono Ikusagami, which is a giant robotic-looking kind of shogun thing. Mecha sun god. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and I I should mention that the uh, the the bird of light. Uh, is also like a mech, a mecha thing. So, so this is kind of where we're getting into the kind of like futuristic aspect that Okawara was talking about. Um, I don't, I don't know why he insisted on them being robots. Anyway, so then we have our our battle, um, where uh, you know we 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 see a lot of stuff. We see the um, Yamato Takeru riding around on the 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 bird of heaven and uh jumping on the heads and stabbing the heads and um you know when he turns into the big mech thing uh he 
Um, you know, he's able to to use a big lightsaber um, with the sound effect and everything to to cut off uh, the Orochi heads and um, and uh, <clears throat> so they win and everyone is is happy again and that's it did i miss anything this movie is very stupid so it's it's hard to remember <laughs> why things are happening and usually the answer is there is no reason so i just want to make sure i did the best any i could it's totally one of those movies that seems like the real point is that the hero saved the day you know like, <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, it's yeah, I don't know. This the, Yamato Takeru is such an interesting concept for a movie. I did not know that it was supposed to be a futuristic take on on the whole mythos, which kind of, I guess, explains some of explains away some of the issues I have with it. Well, it definitely explains some of the stuff, like you know, why are they robots? Why? What's with all this <laughs> outer space stuff? Like, explains why that. Why are costumes so goofy? Why do they look like? <laughs> Like Prince Osu or uh, Yamato Takeru, his costume looks like someone actually made it out of materials that they were finding in the Nike store. Like there's, <laughs> like he looks like he's wearing kicks on his shoes, or he's wearing like the like sneakers with some sort of like duster uh, cover on top of it. It's just. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what I, they I did not like the the <laughs> art direction of this. Film yeah, I don't know much. what they were doing with <laughs> with a lot of this. It's weird because like whatever your opinion of the Heisei Godzilla movies are, I would say mm-hmm. no matter how much you like or don't like them, the issues you have with them could be condensed into one f- full length feature, and it would probably be <laughs> this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I had, I struggled. I think the first time I ever saw this was like four or five years ago. And I actually watched it with, um, Eric Henry, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, but like we were sitting up on his couch and like, I think both of us at different times were like dozing off sitting up. I, I had a really hard time getting through it the first time. This time I sat through it over like two different days. Um, stuff just happens. And I think if I had watched this last after the other two films, it would have made a bit more sense. But the problem is for this film to make any sense at all, like you have to know all of the other things. There's not like a linear story. It just kind of like mm-hmm. takes and pulls from different stuff. And like, it seems to be very haphazard. Um, it, there's no explanation. And it's, it's just really frustrating. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in, I guess you, I guess it would help to know a lot of that, but I was going to bring up, because like before I did this, I listened to uh, the Kaiju cast on this, and you guys gave this movie a little too much credit when you, and I realized this was like 10 years ago or whatever, but you were like, you know, I think maybe it would make sense if we actually knew like the actual mythology, and like, now that we know all this, and we've seen the three treasures, and we know, like, I can tell you that knowing that does not help. (laughs) I'm not think, too big well, to admit that I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, um, I think knowing that gives brings clarity as to what they were trying to do, as opposed to what they realized. Yeah, like I still like I don't. It, it, it kind of makes know. the movie worse, right? Knowing, yeah, <laughs> knowing the whole story makes Yamato Takeru the worst entry of these three for sure. It, it really does. Um, yeah, I. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you there, there's so many times where you're like, wait, why, like. 
I understand <laughs> what's happening, but I have no idea why. Like, I just it the it it really is one of those things where just like the reason there's no reason for a lot of the stuff to happen. It it it, it jumps around uh quite a bit and it just kind of is like okay well you know this is this is uh this is what you get you know there's like i don't i it, it's almost like they like what they don't explain like okay so he has the 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 magic you know amulet and when he uses it for some reason he turns into this like ugly like vampire looking monster yeah i wanted to talk about that actually (laughs) because you know what i said earlier about how uh prince osu doesn't really seem like the a heroic type of character that we you know he cries he throws tantrums and stuff like that the same thing can be said for his bestial version that he turns into for some reason <laughs> in this movie, did you guys figure out why that happens? Cause like, they, no. I there no is idea. a line of dialogue where he talks about this like inner beast thing, but I do not for the life of me remember exactly what he says. And it's like, it's, it's one of those things where like, Hey, we should probably have a line of exposition talking about this. But, but like, even that, that's just explaining what you can see. Obviously he yeah, can turn into like and... a monster. <laughs> Does it explain why he, he looks... can shoot lasers out of his eyes? He's the base <laughs> form of Kibakichi, I guess. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Hey, I think the reason he shoots lasers out of his eyes is he knows magic. <laughs> right. Did you guys like the bean battle? <laughs> like the actual the beans meeting in the middle and like back and forth. Just... Well, it's a guy. It's a Kawakita is this yeah. directing yeah, yeah. the effect sequences. So of course there's beams everywhere. Um, so I, I watched this movie with Gretchen just the other day because I was like, oh, I need I'm to sorry, watch this Gretchen. movie again for the pos- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the next podcast, and so. We're sitting here watching it. We're watching it sort of like uh, remotely, like she's at her place and I'm at my place. We're just doing like a, we're chatting on on FaceTime or whatever. And the whole time I'm sitting here going like, oh my God, now I get why that's happening because I know so much more about the mythos, but it still doesn't make the movie good. <laughs> it makes you recognize more things than mm-hmm. it does understand why events are taking place. <laughs> Um, yeah, and especially comparing it to the lavish tale of the three treasures and the gorgeous animation style of the little prince and the eight-headed dragon, it is lackluster. <laughs> I mean, um, the best thing you can say about the movie is the monster stuff, which takes—I mean, takes the story in its own direction, right? Like right. you got the Orochi monster, but the lava god and the sea monster are both and even the the white bird turning into the mecha phoenix or whatever like those are <laughs> kawakita's crew taking liberties like i'm guaranteeing right now that's they're saying like how can we make a profit off this with bandai oh and yeah so that's why they put out those that's why they added those monsters is to get new figures yeah and you know i i think they were looking for something that could be a second Godzilla franchise and be like, oh, hey, you know, we can have all this merch and all these sequels and uh, there's that didn't happen. We'll we'll, we'll talk about that. But yeah, I, the it's... And, it, and also, I don't know how you feel about the actual, you know, the the monster stuff or the, the kaiju designs or whatever, but it, it, it does have that Kawakita thing where, like, mm-hmm. 
they uh, they they look better on paper <laughs> than in execution. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, very static. Yeah, bigger like, is uh, not always better, Kyle You're right. Yeah, like yeah. um, what did you think? Go ahead, Bird. Oh, I was gonna say like the the Mech Bird and the Mech uh, Giant. Those don't really do anything for me. Um, design wise, I do like the other ones. I, I like the Lava God. Mm-hmm. More than some people, uh, I guess. Um, and uh, I like Muba, the sea god. Uh, it's a little stiff, but compared to some of the other Kawakita creations around the same time, I think it fares a little better. And then Orochi, I actually really love the Orochi uh, design, mm-hmm. and the uh, I love how it looks. And But here, I'll tell you where they messed up. Is when they decided he should have legs. Yes, that's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> and most time, most of the times you see Orochi, he's more of a big snake with eight heads, and uh, he's more of a serpent. And in this, they give him these legs, and you know he's, you know he's being operated a lot like Biolante, where it's, um, you know, a thing that's kind of on wheels and shot at a certain angle and kind of slid across the set, only like he has these legs that have to move with it. And it looks, the leg movements don't really match like the speed that he's crawling across the, the land. And it looks like a thing that's like on this skateboard and it just, it looks wrong. And uh, I think that's where they, they, that was a mistake. I, I think yeah, like Kyle said on uh, his his episode about this movie, don't show the legs. You know that's 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 the secret. Can't show the legs. It's like bef- you would have thought they they <laughs> found that out in nineteen fifty five. Right? Yeah. Know, you know. Well, yeah, and that's when they were shooting Angelus. Uh, they were doing as much as they could to hide his legs to hide the fact that it was a guy on on all fours. And then yeah, once the seventies come, it's like oh, we don't care that it looks horribly fake like a, a guy in a suit you know but yeah don't do that <laughs> uh and I, i'm convinced that this this monster would have been a million times more convincing without those damn legs yeah like the it's a pretty cool kinda, looking monster yeah, it is, yeah the design awesome yeah but like the leg is it's like the leg, the Orochi's doing like this army march, where, like the legs are coming up like to the waist and like also floating at the same time. It's just, it's, it's real bad. That was, it's, that was one. It's thing like that, that uh, the, that meme of the Shiba Inu that they're holding over the water and it's just sort of like slowly paddling its legs, but it hasn't <laughs> even gotten in the water yet. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's just, um, and stuff like that is aged even worse now. You know, and at the time, I can't imagine it was too great. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, the monster is, uh, you know, they were designed mostly by Nishikawa. So, I mean, they look cool, but it's, yeah, in execution, it's just uh, troubling. Um, But, yeah, I mean, this is one of those movies that, like, it's not, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily boring enough for me to, like, hate it. But it's one that, like, I just, I, I consider below average, and 
which is unfortunate because like uh, the concept is cool. Like, hey, we we want to revive the that ancient Japanese legends and make these like adventure movies. Like to me, this should have been like a tokusatsu version of like a Ray Harryhausen movie, like a tokusatsu version of you know Jason the Argonauts or Clash of the Titans or something. And but it it's not just because the the writing isn't there and it it doesn't seem to have the confidence or competence enough in its writing to really like be able to take, you know, the best thing about those Harryhausen movies is it, it takes you by the hand and really just plunges you into, you know, this, this ancient mythological world. And this, that's just what this movie just fails at. And it just, it doesn't engage. You know, bird, you mentioned that you said that thing, like if you took all the failings of the Heisei movies and sort of, combine them you know boil them down into what they really are this movie exemplifies that in terms of character development in terms of story relation in terms of connecting with audiences i think you hit the nail on the head i don't feel any different about mickey sagusa in godzilla versus mothra than i do about princess oto in you know, in Yamato Takeru, like I just, I'm like, okay, whatever. It's a character, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't resonate with me. I shouldn't have said Mickey Sagusa. I should have used a different character, but no, you're right. I well, in that right. movie, yeah. <laughs> Mickey Sagusa. Yeah, but just that, that whole kind of like <laughs> what watching the movies as an American, a lot of times I would sort of go, well, I'm not Japanese. So maybe I don't get that. You know, now I've watched a lot more, Japanese movies uh, than I had, like when we talked about Yamato Takeru back on the podcast. But I can honestly say that this movie has absolutely lost a lot of its shine from all the all the information that I was digging up on my own about this these three movies and the story itself of the birth of Japan and the you know Prince Osu turning to Yamato Takeru and his whole fight like this this movie is in hindsight boring and it adds a lot of elements to the story that i don't think were well explained at all right yeah um and yeah the more you end up learning about the actual story the (laughs) it it gets worse it It doesn't help um did you like that he was that orochi was uh mori whatever it is was it was resurrected by his own fang? The guy, the the guy, the mastermind behind everything is like actually a fang. Yeah, that was like she. the coolest thing in the entire movie. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, and uh, also, even something like uh, Masahiro Takashima plays uh, Yamato Takeru, and people would know him as uh, um, uh, Aoki in Godzilla vs Mechagodzilla, and uh, he's the lead the in Dinosaur Gun- Guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the lead in Gunhead, and I usually like him, but something about him felt like I I, I think you guys might have said this on the Kaiju cast. I don't I don't I don't necessarily remember where I heard it from, but something about him seems like miscast mm-hmm. almost. Like he seems too much like too action hero e to play that character. Um Yeah, it, I don't know. Yeah, I usually like him. I Hiroshi uh, Abe playing uh, the villain is. I mean, he's always cool, but 
he doesn't have much to do, and you know, mm-hmm. most of his character's screen time is in the form of a dragon. Icicle. <laughs> well, yeah, and an icicle. <laughs> so, um, what's a uh, good rating for this, guys? Uh, um, how many? How about oh, go floating ahead. Spa- how about do uh, floating space? Fortresses of Solitude. <laughs> All right. In that case, I will give this two floating space fortresses of solitude. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I feel like I feel like two is almost like too good. A one and a half feels almost not. I don't know. Maybe maybe too mean. So I'm like, is, can we do one point seven five? I don't know. I just it's sure you're gonna do it anyway. Yeah. So it's a <laughs> one and a half to a two. It's not great. Yeah, I I would have to agree. I'd I'd say this is probably a two out of five for me. I I used to like it better than I do now, and you know I do have, I do have all the them figures and a cool poster <laughs> and stuff from the movie. But yeah, honestly, it's just it's so much less appealing than the other two. It really is, yeah. Um. So, uh, thanks to. Uh, how much easier it is to not only get Japanese books, but also um, with the wonders of the internet and being able to get them translated, and also uh, writers like John LeMay, who are always uncovering uh, all this, uh, you know, non-English information and making it easy for us. Uh, We have a lot more information now on um, things like the sequels that uh, never got made, um... And, uh, you know, some of the concept art and how different it looks from the monsters in the final movie. So these Japanese texts have really kind of uh, uh, let us learn more about this movie than we probably ever should have or want to. Um, So I'm going to throw it to Kyle Y to give us some trivia about some of those things. Hey, why not? Oh. I would say, so, as we all know, this is this movie came out the same year as Space Godzilla. Yeah, what a now year. I think we, I think we <laughs> that all, was a bad year. I think we could all say <laughs> Space Godzilla is looking like a pretty good winner, comparatively. Just kidding. Uh, in Godzilla Island, the show that came out in, like, uh, 1998, I believe, where all the monsters are played by Bandai toys or, you know, recon figured Bandai toys, they actually used the Kumasagomi figure for the shape-shifting alien creature called Dororin after he absorbs dirt from Matango Island. And yes, there is a Matango Island in that show. That show is that's, insane, That's a nice cut. That show <laughs> totally deserves... <laughs> that show doesn't deserve it, but that show kind of deserves the subtitle treatment. Oh, I would totally watch it. I would absolutely watch it, hands down. I think it's uh, I think it's really fun-looking, even though it's dorky and probably pretty stupid in, in terms of plot. But yeah, the Godzilla Island show, I have the entirety of it as small digital files, but they are not very... Uh, it's not it's super easy to understand what's going on in the show. <laughs> anyway, Toho also co-produced an animated series for this movie. Uh, well, actually, around this movie. And there's two sequel OVAs, and I actually have one of the episodes right now on my computer. It looks pretty good. It reminds me, animation-wise, of the Zerum anime. Yeah. Um, okay. This is one where I would have 
tried to put more information about that in here, but this is already dense enough. And mm -hmm. uh, if, you know, if if we hear enough from people that have watched it that it's any good, we'll probably do a separate thing on it. Uh, it does reuse some of the, the music from, from the movie, though. Oh, right on. Yeah. Cool. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Bird, Shinji Nishikawa, one of the designers from the Heisei era and beyond of the Godzilla series, designed all the final versions of the monsters. And you shared a bunch of those with us, too. Where did those come from, the, <clears throat> the images? Um, uh, the, so in, in our outline, I, I put some of the concept art, a lot of it, actually, um, in here, just so these guys could kind of see some of the, the different designs. But uh, both a combination of just Googling, and then uh, I have um, Nishikawa's uh, art book that's like all his concept art, um, and a lot of it is in there. Uh, too. So <clears throat> that's where you see not only these monsters, but like uh, just different earlier versions of, of Batra or Destroya or Space Godzilla that look like insanely different from what we know those monsters to look like today. So uh, it, that's worth picking up if anyone um, is interested. Yeah, that book is incredible. I also have it. It's It's worth every penny. Uh, you're gonna have to send me an image of that cover. I have a couple of Nishikawa books, but I'm not sure I have that one. All right. Okay. Anyway, uh, speaking about the design, uh, speaking on the designs, that sea monster Muba is based on one of his unused Biolante designs, and the original Orochi was uh, eight giant snakes that had knotted together in the middle. Yeah, that's one of the ones I sent you guys. That one's pretty, pretty wild. <laughs> Now, I really love the fact that the lava god Kumasa, uh, Kumasagomi originally had like the half man, half spider appearance because it was based on the earth spider, which is a if you're into yokai, you should know about the earth spider, which was a huge yokai spider that was fought. And there's some actually do we have it in here? Anyway, there's it doesn't matter. The uh there's some con there's some ideas out there that the Earth Spider name actually might be referring to people who just didn't want to uh, submit to the rule of the emperor at the time. Right. But yeah. The, the yeah the thing I, I that I don't have in our notes that I'm actually looking at now is uh, that name um, uh, started off as a derogatory nickname for the tribes who refused to submit to Yamato rule. So it is relevant. Um, uh, to this. And so, uh, also Odo was supposed to fight a giant salamander in the movie, but that scene was, uh, declined since it was considered to be too similar to her battle with the sea god Muba. <laughs> yeah. And, um, if, if you, uh, I shared it for you guys, <laughs> but, uh, also if you, um, find, uh, the, the sketches Nishikawa did of how that creature would be played, it's like, a guy in a salamander suit in the front half, and his arms are the f the front legs. And then another guy is like laying by the first guy's knees, and they're both laying on their bellies. And that guy's arms are the back legs. It's completely insane. Toho's human salamander. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, with uh, some of the other things like um, the mech. Knight at the end, uh, one of his early designs from that is clearly like a ripoff of Daimajin. Mm -hmm, um, totally. And then uh, Muba the Sea God, like you can see in some of those pictures, the Biolante 
uh, elements um, with uh, the four-part mouth opening that was yeah. from an unused Biollante. Um, and then uh, there's other concept art of Muba as a completely different animal. There's one that's more like an anglerfish, a hermit crab, um, like a cuttlefish-looking thing. Um, and then, yeah, it looks like they they experimented with a few things for the lava god. Um, one is more of a traditional-looking arachnid, like a tick-spider hybrid. Another one is a little bit more outlandish and centipede-like. And then there's others that are like a spider with a human growing out of it. Um, and, yeah, so um, pretty wild uh, designs. Um, and then... Uh, um, so, um, we also have some information, um, thanks to interviews with people like Nishikawa and Okawara about the direction they would have taken the sequels in. Um, now there's nothing to confirm this, but my theory is that originally it was probably supposed to be more, more parts of the, you know, classical Osu story. But the, the reason these sequels don't even exist is because this movie bombed hard, and it got horrible reviews, so it just never happened. Um, now, again, this is just my theory, but I think probably after it bombing so bad, Kawakita and them and Shogo Tamiyama got some interesting ideas in what maybe could be something that people would be interested in. So, um, Kyle, do you want to tell us more about those? You're talking about the... Uh... Kawakita insisting, are you talking about the sequels? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so the sequels, as you mentioned, never got made. Um, <clears throat> Kawakita insisted on using the infamous unmade monster, Bagan, for the second part, uh, which was planned of course for he did. <laughs> summer of 97. I mean, why not, right? If you're going to have an unmade movie, you might as well throw Bagan in there, right? Yeah, so- just to ensure it doesn't get made. <laughs> it's, like, it's just like self-sabotage. They all knew. Everybody at Toho knows. You can't put bacon in a movie unless you want it to not happen. So that's what Kawakita must have been. This is the writing on the wall. It's the end of my career. I'm going to say, how about bacon? Let's introduce bacon in the second movie. Uh, anyway, he... The, the script apparently wasn't up to par, and Okawara straight up told Shogo Tomiyama it's just no good. How bad could it, it be for Okawara to turn it down? <laughs> I can't. I cannot imagine. Oh my goodness! And both the suit maker Minoru Yoshida and the artist Shinji Nishikawa said that if the series had progressed. There were also talks talks of bringing in King Ghidra and Godzilla into this trilogy now the failure of yamato takero aided in toho's hesitancy to make kaiju films that didn't star godzilla or mothra (laughs) that that makes sense you know uh toho kingdom just put up a little thing about in this in in the 70s uh they wanted to do um a sequel to the three treasures uh, that would have a transforming monster called Bakan, B-A-K-A-N, and um, a budget couldn't be agreed on or something, and it never happened, and that monster would morph into 
bag end later. Uh, but I, I'm hesitant. I, I was hesitant to put that in the notes just because the only source that they have for it is a Japanese fanzine from 2005. Um, so who knows how real that is? I know Toho uh, books about unmade uh, projects um, in Japan. There's like an encyclopedic book about them, which is where John LeMay gets a lot of his information <clears throat> for his books in English, and it's not in any of those. So I don't know. I'm kind of doubtful, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's a thing that is now floating around, I guess. <clears throat> so Matt, so- why don't you tell us? <laughs> How is this different from uh, the the actual tale? So one of the main differences is that the um, the villain is Sukiyomi, who is actually uh, another sibling to Sasano from the uh, Birth of Japan story. He is a real god uh, in the mythos, and he is actually also husband to Amaterasu, which is the god um, uh, of light. And uh, Tsukiyomi is actually the god of the moon. And we'll talk about, I have another point about that here in a second. In the Nihongi, we actually find him depicted as a violent and snobbish character who murders the goddess of food after she uh, prepares a meal he didn't like. And because of this, Amaterasu leaves Tsukiyomi, and that actually explains why you never see the sun and the moon at the same time, which is kind of a a neat little tidbit. Um, There's actually nothing to connect Tsukiyomi to the Orochi in actual mythology. So that that is a big diversion from the original story. Um, Oto, which is the the love interest, is no longer she's no longer Yamato Takeru's concubine or wife, but now she is actually a priestess with magic powers, which is a, a different diversion. She also doesn't sacrifice herself to stop a storm, but in this in this case, it's the sea monster. But this is uh, reversed because she's later revived. Um, obviously, the sea monster Muba is not in the original story. That was just the storm itself. And then Yamato Takuru doesn't transform into a white bird, but is actually assisted by one instead, which is a difference. Um, and then we come to uh, Kumasagami, which is like the, the ogre bar log looking thing. So it was, as Bird mentioned, it was based on the idea of a giant spider monster. Um, scholars do widely agree that it means the earth spider, and it was actually that derogatory term that we kind of talked about earlier. So that's kind of an interesting little tidbit that didn't come quite to fruition, but obviously uh, Kumasagami isn't in the original story at all. So those were kind of the, the main beats of it that they changed. All right. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, that's that uh, <laughs> um i'm pretty impressed that we came in at under two and a half hours uh that was a lot so i think um you know give give yourselves a pat on the back uh is there anything else that we want to say about orochi and yamato takeru uh, just again, a huge thanks to Justin Mollis. Like you made this, you helped so much with the, uh, just the density of the information. So, um, really appreciate that. and want to make sure that, that he knows it's appreciated. And for those of people who don't know his work, like you can definitely go find his stuff on the, the interwebs. Also, uh, the teaser trailer for Yamato Takeru actually, uh, it used Ghidorah heads instead of, I, I mean, I, probably cause the actual 
prop hadn't been built yet. Um, apparently, Ken Satsuma had something to do with uh, Orochi, but I don't know exactly what he did. Um, I don't know. Was he the legs? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, did, he sit, did he sit on a stool inside of a giant cone of, of foam rubber? And uh, Hurricane Ryu was uh, the lava god. So, um, But yeah, uh, it's probably for the best that those sequels didn't happen. Um, and yeah, my theory is that when it bombed, they still wanted to hold on to it and kind of went into panic mode. And that's when they were considering bringing in Godzilla and every, cause they're like, Oh, we, we got to save this thing somehow, but just wasn't meant to be. How um, would you shoehorn Godzilla into, I just, I can't even, I, I mean, well, I, I, if, well, if it stay, if it stayed in a period piece, it could just be like, Oh, this is an older Godzilla, but who knows? Knowing these guys, it probably would have been like some Blade Runner-esque like <laughs> cyberpunk <laughs> future or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, dude, it would just exist because it did. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> um, but Kyle, thank you. It's been it's been nice having you back. Uh and well, thank um, you for having me on, seriously. Yeah, I wouldn't well, I last time you were on was a few years ago for Zerum and I remember when we asked you about ideas, Orochi was one of the ideas you brought out there. So uh, all these years later, it just sat around and uh, <laughs> was waiting for someone ambitious enough to to suggest <laughs> no it. One else, no one else had the self torture <laughs> just to, to to actually choose to do this trilogy, just do three real movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, unless uh, unless there's anything else, I think we're good to get out of here. Right on. All right. Good night, everybody. Peace. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.